0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, we're in the middle of a presidential campaign here in the U.S., and once again, commentators, politicians, reporters, they're bemoaning the apathy and disengagement of young Americans. But there was a time in American history when young people were the most passionate participants in American democracy. And no, it wasn't the 1960s. It was the 1860s. My guest today on the podcast has just published a book about 19th century politics and the energy that young voters brought to the process and how young people, particularly young men in the 19th century, looked to politics for a sense of manhood and adult identity during a time of economic and social upheaval. His name is John Grinspan and his book is The Virgin Vote, How Young Americans Made Democracy Social, Politics Personal and Voting Popular in the 19th Century. And on today's episode, John and I discuss why politics was an essential part of male identity in the 19th century. And how a man's first vote was an important rite of passage into manhood during this time. And we also get into the atmosphere of campaigns in the 19th century America. And if you think this current election cycle is unprecedented in its violence, nastiness, and general circus-like environment, wait until you hear about the booze-laden, torch-lit midnight campaign barbecues and the shankings and brawls that happened at the polls during the 19th century. Some pretty crazy stuff. After the show, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash virginvote. Uh, We will find links to resources, things we mentioned, so you can delve deeper into this topic. John Grinsman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, So you got a new book out about a, a part of American history that a lot of people don't know about. It's called The Virgin Vote, How Young Americans Made Democracy Social... Politics personal and voting popular in 19th century. And um, it's one of the most fascinating books I've read this year um, so far, (laughs) Uh, because it gets into a part of American history that I love is the 19th century up until about the early 20th century. And it's about politics, which is pertinent because we're in an election year. Mm. And I guess my, my first question is, is you know, a lot of people have been saying about this current presidential election, it's, it, that it's unprecedented and it's violence, it's nastiness, you know, and it's general circus-like atmosphere. As someone who has studied and written a book on the politics of the past, is this true? Um, ha, have we devolved from a time when elections were sober and upright and, you know, very... Greek column-esque. I mean, what were elections like during the 19th century?
1: Yeah, I think um, people say that about this election, and this is certainly a weird one, but that's only because we're used to the incredibly quiet, boring political culture of 20th century America. That if you go back and you look at 19th century America, politics is the biggest, loudest, most important thing that's going on. And political events and campaigns are the center, not just of political culture deciding who governs a country, but are the center of entertainment culture that, that drive these big campaigns, these midnight rallies with torches, these bonfires. That, there's a good side and a bad side to this. On the one hand, they do a great job getting many, many people involved, many more than today. Turnout was you know, often over 80 percent, and many of those people are young, unlike today. But you know, it also brings out a lot of stupidness and violence, and people get stabbed and shot at every election in the 19th century, and they there are riots and there are people who don't understand the issues they're voting for and vote the wrong ways and that kind of thing too. So it's, it's a very different world back then.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, you painted this picture and it just sounded like it was a, I mean, it was like a big party, like campaigns and election day was just a big party. Cause not only were there torch lit, you know, uh, marches in the street at night, there was like the parties would put out these big barbecues. That was a, a, a tradition where they'd roast a pig, uh, alcohol, giving out alcohol was, you know, that was part of the election or campaign process.
1: Yeah, this, I mean, you have to remember these campaigns are doing two jobs at the same time. On the one hand, they're trying to win power, basically. And so these parties give out whatever they can to win. I mean, they often buy votes for two or five dollars, but it's cheaper just to get voters medium drunk. You don't want to get them so drunk that they forget to vote, but you want to get them two drinks, three drinks, a couple glasses of whiskey, a couple glasses of beer to get them to vote on your side. And at the same time, politics is American entertainment and American popular culture. This is a, a new country. This is a very shaken up country. There are a lot of people migrating from, from Europe and from different parts of America. And there's no central culture that ties everything together, except for the you know, basically federal political campaigns. I mean, America is a rural nation that doesn't have that much entertainment back then. And so if it's September or October of an election year and the party's going to have a, a rally in town, you go to that and you hang out all night and you drink and you shout and maybe maybe you throw some bricks at the other side, maybe you don't. But uh, it's really the center of popular culture at the time.
0: Right. And you even talk about in the book when um, there'd be Europeans that would come over and see this. I mean, their response was like, yeah, Plato is right. Like democracy just brings out yeah. the worst in people.
1: Yes. People are shocked. Right? And they're shocked by two things. One, they're shocked by how wild and crazy American politics is. And a lot of them see it as a sign that democracy just doesn't work. And the other is they're shocked by American young people because American culture is also in many ways more democratic on the ground. And there's a lot less there's still hierarchies. We would be surprised today by the distinctions. But compared to Europe back then, there's a lot more kind of freedom of action of young people. And so at every level of political campaigns in society, you see children, young adults, youths, 20-somethings are involved really actively. The idea that children were to be seen and not heard is kind of a fiction. The Young people are the loudest part of these political campaigns.
0: Yeah. And that's the, the main um, premise of your book is talking about how young people were really the the driving force of this democratic ethos or fire that hit America during the 19th century. And as you said, like voting was about 80% um, voter turnout was, and a lot of it was young people. But as you just said, um, the this political activism or this involvement in, in politics began in young people even before they could vote. So what were young people who were doing like seven or eight or even 17, what were they doing to get involved in the political process, even though they weren't old enough to vote? Because at the time it was 21 years old, right?
1: Yes. And obviously many Americans, the majority, weren't allowed to vote. But there's still ways that if you're a woman, if you're African-American, a place where African-Americans can't vote, and if you're underage, you can still be really involved because politics is so social. And that starts at a really young age. As you said, people, people raise their children from birth. To identify with the political party of their family, and to really see it as the the institution they belong to, almost almost the way we raise kids with sports teams today. You know, um, they just as people are Eagles fans or Cowboys fans today, people were Whigs or Democrats or Republicans back then, and it builds over time. One of the reasons they get young people so involved and they get such great turnouts is because they layer this interest in politics over many years. Kids are taught to go to celebrations and to rallies, and they, they chant slogans in school, and then they kind of become errand boys and run errands for the political campaigns. They give out ballots on Election Day, or they bring liquor to the campaign headquarters, and they just, from a very young age, they get involved in politics, so that by the time they're 21, they are veterans. They, they've been in politics for years and years and years, whether they can vote or not.
0: And, uh, you know, you talk about in the book that you'd even have young people, as young as 17, doing speeches at political rallies, uh, rallying up the voters, even though they couldn't vote. Like, they were really supremely invested in this, and to the point where they were persuading even adults who could vote.
1: Yeah, there was this tradition of boy orators. And you have to remember, America back then is a speechifying nation. People love giving speeches and hearing speeches there's obviously no TV or radio, and it's really seen as an art. And so kids are raised to give speeches to each other and to adults. And it's not uncommon in a election campaign to go to a town square and see 50, 60, 70-year-olds standing around listening to a 12 or a 15-year-old give a speech on the political issues of the day. They get, they get this great training that connects into politics and also gives them something to do in a sense of agency and involvement. There's nothing that, as they say, tickles the vanity of a young man besides more than giving a, giving a big public speech with adults listening. In the years after the Civil War in the South, during Reconstruction, young African Americans who were born as slaves get really into speechmaking for, for the Republican Party. And it's, this, it's an amazing culture that people who were born in slavery are within a few years making speeches and being listened to as, as candidates by, by adults.
0: And one of the arguments you make in the book, you know, one of the reasons kids got involved because there was this culture there and it was fun, right? You um, could go to these campaign parties, rallies, eat some food, meet with people. Because uh, this is, you know, this is, again, like you said, America was a rural country this time. So this was like the one time people got together and you can actually meet other kids your age uh, and mm-hmm. have some fun in the process. But you also argue that besides the fun young people in America and one of the reasons why they got so heavily involved in politics is that politics offered them something like a, a way to advance themselves personally. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? I mean, how was it that a pol- how is it that politics could help fulfill personal ambitions of young people during the 19th century?
1: I think it goes back to the predicament that young people find themselves in in the 19th century, that this is a period when it's really hard, especially to go from childhood to adulthood, that the 19th century is this great shaken up period in American history. At the beginning of this era, there are 5 million people in America. At the end, there's 75 million. It goes from agriculture to industry and from country to city, and, and millions of immigrants are pouring in. And the whole and they're boom and busts all the time, there are depressions that hit young people particularly hard. It's really hard to find the path to maturity for these young people. They have trouble finding jobs. They have trouble finding mentors. The marriage age is rising, so they have trouble finding husbands or wives. Um, they move around a lot, so they feel very unstable. There's a lot of uncertainty for 15 or 18 or 22 year olds, for men and for women, and so they gravitate to the political system as this source of ambition and identity and involvement. Maybe they can't get a job, but they can give a speech for the party or they can march or they can organize an event. It's this, this kind of artificial sense of adulthood when everything else in their life seems kind of blocked.
0: Yeah. That part in particular was really interesting. Um, because we often have this mistaken idea or this idea that, you know, kids these days, these 20 somethings, right? These millennials, you know, they don't know, they don't know what they're doing with their lives. They're still living at home with your parents. Like they just need to get on with their life. And you know, you read millennial blog posts, which just like, I don't know what to do with my life. Maybe I'll intern at a, at a publisher and, you know, find my calling. Mm-hmm. And we often think that people back then in the 19th century, like they had it all figured out. Like they knew like they had like a certain sentence of steadiness about them. But the picture you paint that, like you just said, like these young people in their 20, you know, late teens, early twenties, they were filled with as much existential angst as 20 somethings today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You really see the parallels when you read their diaries and their journals. And a lot of them kept diaries and journals. The literacy rate is very high. So we have all these great documents from, Young men and young women who just moan in their diaries about how they can't figure out how to become adults. The whole world their parents grew up in has crumbled. You can't grow up the way that Europeans had grown up or earlier Americans or kind of rural, stable people had had found their way into adulthood. But they're none of the institutions of the 20th and 21st century. There isn't a good school system. There aren't unions. There isn't a clear way to get a job or find a find a spouse or settle down. And so these young people really cast about. And some of them do really well. And, you know, the, the booms and busts, they get the booms and it really benefits them. And some of them, you know, they essentially the equivalent of graduating into a recession. They really struggle to find themselves. But what they all share is uncertainty. No one knows how to become an adult. The old way is kind of crumbled and the new way hasn't been established yet. And I think we see echoes of that today, that in many ways it seems as if in the 20th century there was a stable path into adulthood. And I'm a millennial. I think you count as a millennial too, right? Right, yeah, barely. Yeah, <laughs> me too, barely. Um, but we, we've we seen this, this shaking in the last couple of decades that makes it harder to become an adult. And a lot of people a lot of people struggle with this and it's not unprecedented. This, this has happened before.
0: I'm curious, you said, you know, have, there's journal diary entries. Do you, do you, I don't know if you have one at hand, but is it like an excerpt from a journal from a young person yeah, that sure. you have that you could um, share with us?
1: Yeah, let me, let me pull that up. Uh, and I'm going to read it if it's too long. I can't, no, that's fine. I'm to read one part of it. Um, so this is a, a diary from this guy, Ben Foster, who lives in Maine. He's about 16 years old. He can't get an apprenticeship. He can't get a, a uh, bell or a girlfriend. He's having trouble meeting women. He's having trouble getting a job. He really feels stuck and he keeps his great diary. And he writes, my life is probably a quarter or a fifth gone. And with what result? Leaving me ignorant, poor, fickle, wavering, without brilliancy, talents, wealth, or influential friends. A shuddering discontent that crawls over me when I reflect that I'm learning nothing, earning nothing, doing nothing. I shrink to think of a time when I'm 21 and shall have no home to fall back upon in case of disappointment when I must do or die. And he's really, he seems particularly depressed or worried, but he's really common. There's so many anxious, ambitious, striving young people who the culture is pushing them to succeed more and more. There's this kind of belief in progress that earlier generations didn't have, but there's no clear root to it. So they, they feel like they're failing individually and they're looking for something to help them feel more like they have that agency and like they have that progress, even if they can't get a job or find a wife or whatever.
0: Right. So they couldn't find the path to adulthood in the marketplace because jobs were they were in a transition in the economy. So it was tough, much like we are today. I guess some of the traditional like the family um, part was maybe is falling apart a little bit because people were becoming more mobile. So I guess they, they looked. I guess politics was the outlet they could find a path to adulthood by taking an active part in politics.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think uh, there's a, a slightly later quote, I don't want to quote too much, but from the same guy, he, he's moaning, he's whining, and then he goes out to a political rally, and he talks to people about politics at this upcoming election, the 1848 election. And he goes home and writes in his diary, I can say that nothing in some years, not intimately concerning myself, have I felt so much intense uh, interest and excitement as a pending presidential election. I have talked and argued with men. I have endeavored to advance a boy's opinion with a boy's modesty. Oh, I wish that for one year on this one topic, I was a man, a voter. So before, when he's looking at his life, he's saying, oh, I I can't imagine when I'm going to be 21 and I'm an adult. I have no idea what I'm going to do. He's terrified about it. And then a couple diary entries later, he's out at this rally and he's wishing that he's a man and a voter because politics seems like it offers him some kind of agency in his life that he doesn't see in, in any other world.
0: Right. And, you know, dovetailing off that, this idea of uh, becoming a man, and you argue in the book, make the case that politics wasn't just tied up with adulthood, but it was really tied up because men were the only ones that could vote at the time, it was tied up with notions of manhood and masculinity in the 19th century. Um, so like mm-hmm. this, uh, Ben, he felt he wasn't making a lot of progress in becoming a man. Um and I'm guessing, I mean, what, what it, besides just like the sense of agency, I mean, what did politics offer young men in terms of their conception of masculinity that they weren't getting from say their families or their church, for example?
1: The idea of masculinity back then is rooted in this idea of being stable, that the kind of the vision of men. And if you read, you see this a lot in kind of advice on young books for young men on how to grow up and and in comics, and in novels, the idea for young men is that they should be stable and self-controlled. That's what masculinity is all about. It's not necessarily physical strength. It's a father, a boss, somebody who is stable, has both feet on the ground, and is, is, uh, has control over their instincts. They're, they're, they're not violent. They're not aggressive. They're, they're completely in control of themselves. And this is very hard for an 18-year-old to do in that economy. One of the ways they can do that is have a stable connection to a political party. They might not have other identities. They might not have the job or the family, but they can be a Democrat or a Republican. They can be a voter and a citizen of the nation. And that's like a great artificial way for them to feel that identity and stability that they associate with manhood. And at the same time, this political culture denies women that same sense. So there are a lot of women who are deeply interested in politics, but they're always unstable because they can never actually Act. They can never vote. They can always be. They can be very interested, and they are. And they can talk to their husbands and their children and their fathers about politics, and they can play a role. But because they can't vote, they're always somewhat unstable. They're never full citizens or adults in the eyes of the country in many ways.
0: And and so were these young men, and getting involved in politics. I mean, was it just the act of getting involved in politics that gave them a sense of that they were becoming a man, or? Did a lot of them have aspirations to be, you know, work their way up through the party ranks and actually, you know, become part of the political machine in a way and find status or, um, I don't know, a sense of of identity um, within the the actual political party.
1: I think for a lot of these young guys, it's temporary. That there are people who want to make their lives in politics and become bosses and make money and a career in it, but a lot of them. They just need politics for a couple of years. And we know that young, young men in their late teens and early 20s are the most engaged in politics. And they can do things like, if, if you're Ben Foster, if you're this unstable kid in Maine, one thing you can do is you can join a political club. And then you're in this organization with uh, 20, 30, 100 like-minded young people of the same party who are your age or a couple years older or a couple years younger. And you meet on weeknights or weekends and you drink, and you smoke cigars, and you put on uniforms, you march down the middle of town square, and you have a camaraderie. It's it's like, it's like a little bit like something along the lines of a fraternity or a gang or some sense that here are other men, and we are all part of this club together. Uh, that's one way they get it. Another is through voting, and that act of casting a ballot when they turn 21 is seen as a gateway to real manhood and adulthood.
0: So your book's called The Virgin Vote, and that's what um, they call, called, it was referred to as a man's first vote, the virgin vote. Um, Why was it such an important event in a young man's life?
1: Yeah, they use that phrase, the virgin vote. I I was seeing that in diaries for years, and it just stuck in my my head. It just says so much about how they saw politics, that a man's first vote is his virgin vote or his maiden vote. And the idea is that he's losing his political virginity and he's supposed to be courted by a political party before that. And once he votes for that party, he's supposed to stay monogamous for life for that party. So you cast your first vote, your virgin vote, not only does it make you a man, but it makes you a Democrat or a Republican or a Whig or what have you. And you stick with that party for life. And young people really treat young men really treat this as the event, the rite of passage into adulthood. they, Younger kids kind of look forward to it and talk about when they become voters. Virgin voters went on the days before their election. A lot of times they try to grow out a beard or a mustache or some facial hair, and they they try to dress up and look adult. And then once they've cast that vote, these guys talk about it for the rest of their life. You read their diaries, you read their memoirs when they're 80 years old, you read their uh, obituaries, and it always mentions who they cast their first
0: vote for. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Did you know fast-growing trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. criteria that I was looking for. turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast-growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. That's fascinating. And so I guess this is going back to the idea that um, American society, American culture was in flux and rites of passages that may have existed before were no longer there. So young men, you know, used the political process, the act of making a vote as that new rite of passage.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you think about it culturally, America is an overwhelmingly white place at this time, and most of those white people come from the British Isles or Germany they've given up on those old European traditions. African Americans have been separated from whatever traditions go back to Africa. Most cultures have some rites of passage, but America is this place in flux where those old hundreds year old traditional rites of passage are being forgotten and nobody remembers how you became a man in Germany or whatever. And so they need something new. And the one thing they all share throughout the country is the political process. And so American democracy becomes popular culture and offers this right of passage to a nation that's forgotten its old ways to become an adult.
0: So how did the balloting system in the 19th century make a man's first vote all the more significant? Because I think a lot of people think now, oh, why, why is that so significant? Like you get this Scantron, right? Um, <laughs> and you just fill in the arrow and then you give it. But um, was there the way they did balloting back then, did that add to the significance of the vote in any way?
1: It's a great question. We've made the active voting so clean and safe and dull that it's hard to imagine what it was like in the 19th century. The government didn't use to print ballots. Parties would print ballots. And what would happen is the the men in a community would gather on election day in a town square or in a saloon or in a warehouse, and there'd be somebody at the front with a ballot box accepting ballots. And so these party activists would try to voice ballots on whoever they could for their party, and they'd line up and they'd try to vote. But the problem is Once you got to the front of the line, there's no registration system, but there are challengers, which are party operatives from both parties who are trying to challenge people's votes from the other side. So if I'm a Democrat, then I might try to pick out who looks like a Republican based on what I know about the people in my community, his clothes, his accent, his race, his background, all of these things to try to figure out who's going to vote the way I don't want them to. And I might challenge them on legal grounds. I might try to intimidate them. I might stab them. They they used to stab people with awls, like the shoemakers, right. spike, because you could kind of subtly poke somebody with that and it would hurt them but and threaten them without becoming a big thing. So because it's so contested, because there are fights on election days and everyone is gathered and there's music and drunk people, it makes this act of voting even more of an important rite of passage. All the men in your community will see you vote and they'll see you go up to the front of the line. And cast your ballot and all the women in your community will hear about it and know that you've done this thing that supposedly makes you a man back then. So it really, because voting was so different and because it was so contested, it makes the act that much more important.
0: Right. And going back to they didn't have, you know, official IDs, like a lot of people didn't even know their actual birthday birthday. And, yeah. <laughs> and so you had the, like, that's one of the reasons why they, these young guys would start trying to grow mustaches and beards because one of the ways that they were challenged was like, well, you're not old enough to vote. Um, and so they try to look older. And so by the act of voting, like it was a way of being able to, for the community to say, yeah, you are a man. Like you are, you look old enough to be a man. We accept you as a man.
1: Yeah. Cause who knows? I mean, this world is so shaken up that Okay, so you might be 21, but your mother died of cholera, so she can't tell anybody how old you are. Maybe you were born in Pennsylvania and moved to Oklahoma, so no one remembers where you were born. You might not even know how old you are. Most people don't, um, So, and you certainly can't prove it even if you do. So you need to prove it through – you can grow a beard, so I guess you can vote – um, you can get somebody to kind of vouch for you. If you've done a impressive manly deed in some communities, you could get the vote. So if you lived in kind of a pioneer community in, in Nebraska or Colorado or California, often you could vote underage just because they thought, well, you got to California, you're worth, you can vote. Soldiers could often vote at 18 or 17 just because they were a good soldier during the Civil War. But yeah, the... Because nobody really knows how old you are, and because it's so hard to enforce, it makes the act of voting that much more important and that much more meaningful about adulthood and manliness as well as politics.
0: Right, and then you also talk about, um, you know, with the newly freed African American slaves um, who were voting for the Republican Party. Um, there's a lot of voter intimidation. So, like. Black men in the community, they they'd get together and, as a group and make sure they had revolvers, make sure they had knives, and they'd go together to vote um, to avoid that intimidation. And sometimes there, you know, things came to came to a blow.
1: Yeah, and it, it reminds you or reminds me not to be too light about all this political violence because it seems like it was so far away, and we can, you know, it sounds sounds interesting and exciting and kind of exotic, but you have to remember these. Elections turned into race riots and massacres, and these are the bloodiest elections in American history in the South in the years after the Civil War, and there's a huge number of African Americans who are voting for the first time, and they're deciding elections. Ulysses S. Grant is elected in 1868 because he has the Black vote on his side, and so these become really contested places. They're organizations like the Union League, which is a club of, of African Americans, especially in Mississippi and Alabama, who they all go to vote together, and bring revolvers, whether obviously are kind of hidden and often they need them. So, yeah, this, this political violence really affects who gets to vote and what voting means. And it's true for, for other minorities, too. It's especially true for Irish Catholics in northern cities where there's a Protestant majority who really doesn't want Catholics voting. And so they often have to fight their ways to the polls, too
0: right um, and then you know going back to you know there's a lot of club formation during the, this wasn't just unique to politics like you just young people at the time were just forming clubs about everything um, but you talk about within within the individual parties there' was these sort of like sub clubs of young party supporters and I think one you mentioned that I thought was really fascinating was the wide awakes oh yeah um, and it was kind of like it's actually kind of scary when you like you describe like what they were, I mean they would get in these like uniforms and they'd um, look kind of like knights almost and uh-huh. they would uh, carry torches at night and like the reason, I guess the reason why they were called wide-awakes they'd go to people's houses in the middle of the night and like keep them you know <laughs> bang pots and pans or things
1: yeah I mean w- when we think of Abraham Lincoln's election we think of kind of upstanding honest Abe and we imagine this this honest tall kind of earnest uh, statesman Abe Lincoln's election is organized by this movement called the wide-awakes which comes out of Connecticut the leader of the whole national movement is 23 years old, and what they do are they're young men who dress up in really military uniforms, black capes and black hats, and they march in the street, and they basically take over the North. There are tens if not hundreds of thousands of them from, from Maine to San Francisco and into some southern states, and they're seen, for Northern Republicans who support Abe Lincoln, they're seen as this godsend that the, the North is going to finally stand up for their rights. If you're a Southerner who doesn't like Abe Lincoln, this looks like the beginning of a political war. It looks like a paramilitary movement. And so this this movement actually affects the, the beginning of the Civil War because it seems so threatening. These these young men in uniform marching at night, well, that that doesn't seem so great if you're not on their side. Oh, and that also, because politics is so competitive, because the races are so neck and neck, everybody steals everybody's ideas. So there the wide awakes are created and almost immediately Lincoln's opponents all have similar organizations with different names. So no party ever really has an edge for very long because as soon as one group of 18-year-olds tries something, their their opponents across town try the same thing. Or if they're doing it in Maine, someone in South Carolina comes up with something similar. So because politics is so close and so contested back then, and Lincoln only won that election with 39% of the popular vote, uh, people really rip off each
0: other's ideas. Yeah. Um, so we was thinking about, uh, you know, the adults who were actually running for these offices that these young people were campaigning for. What did the, these adults think of these ardent young people? I mean, do they just sort of like, do they, I guess, did they, they leverage them and they just sort of like at the same time disdain them?
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, It's a hierarchical society still, and adults think they are better and wiser and smarter than young people. But no matter how great they think they are, the parties need young people. Because elections are so close, and because there's so few independents, because most people who pick a party, their virgin vote, stick with a party, the only way to gain any ground is to bring in new members, and new members are young members. So these parties realize pretty quickly that they really need to bring in 21-year-olds. So they organize events to be entertaining for young voters. They reach out to to children and and, uh, youths because they know that if they win over a 15-year-old, maybe in six years, that 15-year-old will vote for their party. And they focus a ton of time and money on entertaining and reaching out to and recruiting young men and young women because they know young women have an influence on the young men in their lives. So while governing in in Washington or in state capitals is done by these these 60-year-old guys, campaigning is done by 18, 20, 22 year olds and the parties know that and they know it's their best shot at victory.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I guess at the same time though, they just kind of like, oh, you know, they, cause it seems like a lot of the, like the politicians you described in the book, they kept the distance from actual campaigning, um, cause they would, they didn't want to solely themselves. So they left it to these, these young men to do it for them.
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's two, there are two attitudes towards young voters then and now, honestly, and we see this throughout American history. On the one hand, there are some people who look down at young people and see them as, as self-involved or flighty and not, not committed and not knowledgeable and kind of disdain young people. And then there are those who think that young people are purer, smarter, somehow going to uplift the democracy and solve all the problems. And obviously both are exaggerations. Um, but yeah, you see people go back and forth. Some people see young voters as the way to destroy the other party or clean up politics when it's very, very dirty in the late 19th century. And others say they'll accept young people's votes, but they're not going to listen to them in terms of party platforms or nominations or anything like that.
0: Um, so in the book, you, you know, a, lot of the, a lot of the focus is on um, men, obviously, because like, they're the ones who could vote. But you argue that women um, also used the political culture of the 19th century to uh, advance personal goals or personal ambitions. So how were they able to do that when they weren't allowed to vote?
1: For women's, women's politics back then, they have to be social. They, the democracy is social, and women's influence has to depend on on connections to men because they obviously can't vote themselves and that works both ways on the one hand there are women with really deeply held political beliefs and what they can do is they can pressure their their fiance to go vote for their their political beliefs and they can they can push their their siblings and their the the men in their lives to vote and they do and then there are women who use politics as a tool just as men are using politics as a tool so it's a great way to court if you want to if you want to meet some young guy, you go out to a political rally. If you want to get the attention of someone who's in a political club, well, if you talk about, with him about the party he supports, that's a great way to engage with him. And politics kind of gives these Victorian women cover to court in a way they otherwise wouldn't be able to. They can go. Where else in 19th century America could a Victorian lady go out at midnight and hang out with a bunch of drunk people and maybe get drunk herself and, you know, wave a torch and everything? Is this... It offers some kind of cover for that, and women get more directly involved. They they organize uh, women's clubs and they they march dressed as goddesses or dressed as the different states. So there there are a lot of ways women can play a role socially, even though they're denied the right to vote.
0: So this uh, the period you cover was about I guess 1840 till about the early. Like nineteen, I mean, nineteen oh five, and it seems like there was this, this precipitous drop. Can you, I mean, that was something that amazed me. What can you describe the drop in, I guess, voter turnout from like the peak it was there in the late nineteenth century to like the early twentieth century?
1: Yeah, it really crashes throughout the second half of the nineteenth century. Roughly eighty percent of eligible voters will turn out in an election, in a presidential election. Sometimes it's lower, sometimes it's higher but there's this really sustained period of really high levels of involvement. And then something happens in 1900 and those numbers tumble in almost every presidential election until by the 1920s, fewer than half of eligible voters are going to the poll. There's this political culture that exists in the 19th century that just dies within a generation in the 20th century. And we've known this as historians for a while, but I think the answer to why this happens is Lies with young people. It's, there's a new generation of young people who don't engage in politics and look to politics in the same ways as their parents or their grandparents had, and they don't join. So the uh, people who cast their virgin vote in 1876 will keep turning out for the rest of their lives, but the people who could vote for Teddy Roosevelt or Taft don't care as much, and they don't bother to.
0: And so, I mean, what changed? Um in american culture where young people just they weren't looking to politics anymore for personal fulfillment or a sense of identity
1: i'd say there's a change with young people and there's a change with politics with young people life is easier for a lot of these people in the 20th century than in the 19th they're more institutions that kind of stabilize their world they have a full school system until they're 18 they have unions they have cities where they know more people they have all these other options. They have an entertainment culture. They're teenagers in the 20th century, and they have movies and radio and dance halls and cars and all these other entertainment forms. Uh, so in many ways, they don't have the same need for politics and political clubs that they did before. I mean, their lives are... They, they still have their challenges, and life is still difficult for many of them. I don't want to be too exaggerate with this, but, yeah, the I mean, the death rate goes down. Young people are living longer, and they're healthier, and they're just... They have less need, so there are fewer of them turning to politics. At the same time, the political parties, there's a real revolution in who runs the parties in that in the 19th century, campaigning is run by kind of working class men who, you know, they might run a saloon or a butcher shop, and uh, they organize campaigning. There's a switch in the end of this period where these kind of upper middle class reformers take over politics, and the one thing they really don't like is these crowds of drunk you know, uh, working-class men in the street. So one thing they try to do is they try to shut down this public campaigning that uh, attracts so many young people.
0: And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, I think that's the cultural change where there was more outlets. I guess America became more of a peer culture. Um, young people began looking to their peers instead of, I guess, some of the political parties or the political process. They were kind of looking up to older people. Into sort of ushering them into adulthood, um, as these outlets like you know talk about. You talk about sports. You talk about the amusement park. You talk about you know, high schools where you have the same kids who are your age. They start turning the dent to them to their identity and sense of fulfillment instead of older people uh, to give yeah. that to them.
1: I think that's really important. That we forget how how mixed life used to be in terms of age groups, and that if you went into a saloon in 19th century America. There'd be 15-year-olds, and there'd be 12-year-olds, and there'd be 30-year-olds, and there'd be 80-year-olds. Society mixed more in, in churches and political organizations and work. They just spent more time with other age groups. In the 20th century, the age groups separate out a lot more. So political parties still have youth organizations, but there's an age limit on them. No one over 21 joins the youth organizations anymore. So these young people who want to meet adults who can benefit their career or give them a sense of manhood or whatever they don't meet these people anymore. They're, they're isolated with their own age group and there's not, there's not really the same selling point. If if you can't, if politics is removed from kind of personal ambition, why should young people care?
0: Right. And then going back to the, the change in the political process, I mean, the, with the, uh, you make the case that the introduction of the Australian ballot ballot, where it was, you know, a state sponsored ballot, like the kind of we have today took away some of the significance of the virgin vote or that first time vote that, young people in the 19th century have and that we really don't have anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, voting machines are kind of a physical example of what happens. When there's a ballot box, everyone stands around the ballot box and tries to put the ballot in the box and there's, you know, conflicts over that. When it's a voting machine and you go off by yourself behind a curtain and you vote with this electric device or mechanical device, it's it's a really different culture. It says politics isn't social, politics is private. And that's one of the big changes. The, this kind of public political culture goes away. And politics becomes something you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. That really saps the interest. It, it doesn't really benefit young people, and they're kind of cut off from it in a way after that.
0: Right, and that's not to say, I mean, like, there were benefits. There were, there were reasons why they made these reforms, um, you know, avoid corruption, um, mm-hmm. voter, voter fraud. But yeah, in the process, you lose something. With, within, like, with any, with any reform you make, um, yeah. you, you yeah. lose something.
1: Yeah, there's a trade-off between big, loud, popular democracy and smaller, quieter, cleaner democracy. And there's a huge amount of corruption and a huge amount of problems with 19th century democracy. This is not in any way a golden age, and I certainly wouldn't want to have to vote back then. But there's a trade-off, and as they clean it up, they lose some of the popularity.
0: But do you say with this current election, I mean, I guess maybe the rise of social media and people sort of spout their political opinions on social media. Are we seeing the, the reemergence of, you know, bringing back that sociability into politics again?
1: Well, yeah, for good and for bad. I, I, see some of that. I mean, one of the things that powered 19th century politics are newspapers and the thousands of newspapers in the country and people cut out articles and they reprint them almost the way we do with links and sharing things today. So there's this idea that there's a social conversation about an election, which we have again today as opposed to the twentieth century when there are a couple media outlets who control it.
0: And um I'm curious you know, a lot of people get this idea because I have like John L. Sullivan. I have like this retro vibe on the art of manliness that I'm like nostalgizing Uh the past and Uh uh, and that I want to bring back and I go back to the 19th century or something, but Uh I don't. Um, But I'm always (laughs) curious. Like there's always things you could probably learn from the past. I'm curious if there's anything we can learn from this very, uh, this period of an American history where uh, political activity was high that maybe we could bring back in some way or another
1: yeah I completely agree we don't want to bring back i don't want to 90, get, i don't 50, want to get
0: shanked when I go to the ballot you know make yeah, a vote
1: right yeah i I completely agree um and we want everybody being able, allowed to vote, but there are some things they are really good at and they're really good at engaging people, particularly young people and I think they do that through two ways we could think about today. one is that the way they view politics, they view the political as personal voting isn't Voting isn't just about issues. It's not just about civic duty. It's not just kind of about the big, the better good, the greater good. It's about young people, personal engagement with politics. And voting means so much to them as individuals, and they use it in their lives. You see, they're not just voting because of the issues, but they're voting because they need politics in their lives. So they make the political personal that way. The other thing is this idea that democracy is social, that you don't just vote because of your own individual views, but you vote because of the world you've grown up in and the society you've grown up in. And we've, we see this today. Political scientists have shown that people who grow up around voters are more likely to vote. People who grow up in households where people talk politics are more likely to vote. Uh, you don't just decide on your own whether you're going to be engaged or not or how you're going to be engaged. Really, it's really promoted by, by your role models and the world around you. And I think that's something we could think about again. I think there's a tendency to kind of shake your finger at young people and say, oh, they don't vote, why don't they care? But Every young person who's not voting is the result of the adults in their life not introducing them to politics.
0: Okay. Well, John Greenspan, this has been a really fascinating discussion because, like I said, this was uh, really one of the most fascinating books I've read so far this year. Just so interesting. Um, thank you. To read this part of American history. Well, John Greenspan, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure.
1: Oh, yeah, Brett. Thanks for having me.
0: My guest today is John Grinspan. He's the author of the book, The Virgin Vote How Young Americans Made Democracy Social, Politics Personal, and Voting Popular in the 19th Century. And it's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And be sure to check out the show notes at aom.is/virginvote for uh, links to resources we mentioned so you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast and have gotten something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Help spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.